I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. We are doing an overview of the book of Exodus. We started last week and we're going to continue to do that for the next several weeks. Means we're not going to hit every single chapter of every single verse that's contained within Exodus, but it means we're going to look at an overarching theme that we find within it. And last week we looked at the cries of the people. Israel was found in Egypt under, the, under slavery to the Pharaoh. We saw that God heard the cries of the people who needed deliverance from slavery. We saw God's provision in providing a rescuer for them in Moses. We saw God's sovereign plan as he preserved Moses and kept Moses from being killed as a young baby. And we saw God's great hand of protection. We left off last week with Moses about ready to step out and do what God had called him to do, which was to go and to confront Pharaoh, which is no small deal. And what we're going to do this morning, hopefully, is we're going to walk through chapters 5 through 11. And in those chapters, we're going to answer, hopefully, the question, why the Exodus? What was the Exodus about? And what is God doing in it? And I want to point your attention this morning as we read to the first two verses of chapter 5. So Exodus chapter 5, I hope you've turned there in your Bible or in one of the Bibles supplied to you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. If you're physically able, we do this out of reverence for the Word of God, the fact that we get to read it today in our own language. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? I pray that you will show us today that you are the Lord, and you do whatever your mighty hand desires. So, Father, teach us your word today. I pray we'll walk away from today with a clearer understanding of who you are and your holiness and your greatness because, God, you are amazing to us. God, use your word to feed your sheep this morning, that they would walk away loving you more and hating sin more. Do it all for the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to present to you this morning that I believe the exodus, God bringing his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea onto Mount Sinai, I want to present to you this morning that I believe the exodus is God's answer to Pharaoh's question. In chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? 
God is going to answer that question through the Exodus. By the time we get done with God delivering his people out of Egypt's hand, that question will be answered. But what does it look like? What's going on behind the scenes through this? And the reason we're walking through Exodus is because I believe that Exodus is singularly the story from the Old Testament that the New Testament calls us to draw upon, above all. That when you look at what the New Testament teaches us and what Jesus shared, there is a constant refrain back to the Exodus. And so I believe if you're going to have a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches about how God rescues people from their sin, you need to study the Exodus. I want to point out to you in chapter 5 that as God has prepared Moses to go and confront Pharaoh, he's going to walk into a Pharaoh who does not wish to budge. In chapter 5, we hear Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron. When, when Moses says, God said, let his people go, Pharaoh responds, no. God has commanded Pharaoh, and yet Pharaoh rejects. And I want you to notice that these are God's people. God asserts from the very beginning that these are not Pharaoh's people. These are God's people. He says, let my son go. Let my people go. God says, these are my people, and you're going to let them go. But Pharaoh responds in verse 2 with, why should I obey God? Pharaoh's response is rebellion. And he says, not only am I not going to listen to him, who is the Lord that you talk about? I don't know him, and I will not obey him. Doggy, you see what I'm talking about? Pharaoh's not just misguided. He's not just ill-informed. Pharaoh is rebellious against God. He says, I don't know who he is, and I won't listen to him. Can I remind you that in this day and age, Pharaoh was the king. In fact, Pharaoh referred to himself as the God king. He was to be worshipped, not just followed. And so when Moses and Aaron show up and say, the Lord says, let my people go, Pharaoh goes, oh no. They're my people, and I do with them as I please. Chapter 5 goes on to share with us that Pharaoh actually acts out against God's people. Verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. Pharaoh responds to Moses' call and Aaron's call to let the people of God go. And Pharaoh responds by making it worse on them. He says, we're no longer going to give them straw to make bricks. They're going to have to do it themselves, but they still have to maintain the quota they had all along. So as soon as Moses and Aaron show up and say, let God's people go, Pharaoh goes, I'll show you who's God. Have them make more bricks. Have them get their own straw. Have them keep the quota. They'll do what I say. Pharaoh, Pharaoh wants to demonstrate that he is God, and he does so by upping his rage against them. He acts out against God's people. And then notice that in verse 9, Pharaoh 
actually calls God's commands lying words. He says in verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. <laughs> the first thing you get in chapter 5 is Pharaoh is not misguided. He is flat out rebellious against God. He wants to be God himself. He demonstrates it in his words. He demonstrates it in his actions. Now, chapter 5 goes on to tell us that uh, the foremen, the foremen of Israel, the ones who helped organize the labor and they're making bricks, the foremen actually start to turn on Moses and Aaron too. They say, listen, before you went and talked to Pharaoh, we didn't have it this rough. What did y'all say to him? Because now he's made it 10 times worse. And the foremen actually start to doubt whether they should listen to Moses and Aaron. Verse 22 and 23 tells us that Moses himself starts to doubt. In chapter 5, verse 22 through 23, he says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses, even Moses is like, what are you doing? You're ruining everything. Oh, listen. God's going to respond to all this rebellion and distrust. And how's he going to do it? By an event that they will tell their children and grandchildren about till the end of time. But I want you to notice that the Bible sets the stage with everyone questioning God, including Moses, the foremen of Israel, and Pharaoh. Then in chapter six, God makes a very important reminder. Because in chapter six, God promises to deliver his people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, with a strong hand he will deliver them out of his land. God promises to deliver God's people by doing what? Forcing Pharaoh to let them go. He actually describes it as Pharaoh's hands doing it, but we know from God's word that it's not Pharaoh's hands doing it. Who's doing it? God's doing it. He's moving Pharaoh's hand, and he's going to do it with some very difficult things. Then he tells us why he's going to do it. Why is he going to deliver his people? In chapter 6, God reminds them of the covenant he made with Abraham, the promises he made to make the people of God, a nation. He promised Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 12 and, and chapter 15, that he would make the descendants of Abraham a mighty nation, that they would be as numerous as the stars. And he tells us in chapter six, that's the basis as to why he's doing what he's doing in Egypt. He says in verse three of chapter six, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant. You need to mark that in your Bible. That is an important word. That word covenant means God has entered into a relationship with them that is binding. He says, I, I made a covenant. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I've remembered my covenant. 
Remember, we talked last week that when God remembers his covenant, it doesn't mean he just calls it to mind. It means he's going to do something about it. Say, verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Why is he going to bring them out? Not because they're great, right? Not because they're cool people. Not because they're really adorable. He's going to bring them out of Egypt because God says, I promised I'd make you a great nation. And I'm going to get you out of Egypt for my namesake. Woo. See, anytime God does something, it's ultimately about him. And God reminds the reader of the covenant he made with Israel. And he's going to act to fulfill that. He's going to deliver them and he's going to bring them into a land. Now, chapter 7 gets to the issue. And what we're dealing with, the main issue that chapter 7, 8, 9, 10 points out to us is that Pharaoh's issue and Israel's issue is not primarily an outward action. Israel's issue, Pharaoh's issue is a heart problem. Because when you read Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10, you see the word heart over and over and over and over again. Why? Because God is driving home the point that the main problem we all face is the heart condition we have. Pharaoh is rebellious against God because of his heart. What's interesting is at the beginning of chapter 7, God says Moses is going to be like God and Aaron is going to be like his prophet. Now, just so you know, God has given you a picture of how he's about to act in Egypt. Because when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, I don't know if you know the setup, but in Egypt, when you went before Pharaoh, you didn't talk to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was too good for you. You didn't go talk to Pharaoh. If you needed to talk to Pharaoh, you talked to his man at his side, and he would communicate to Pharaoh for you. So imagine the scene. Moses and Aaron are going to go before Pharaoh and his attendant. And when they're speaking, they're not speaking to Pharaoh. That'll get you killed. But instead, they're speaking to Pharaoh's right-hand man, and Pharaoh's right-hand man is going to talk to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's going to tell his right-hand man what to say back, and they're going to talk. You see the setup? Pharaoh wants to make sure you know you ain't in charge. And he's too good for you. So when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and his attendant, guess what happens at the beginning? Moses doesn't talk to Pharaoh directly. Did y'all catch that? When Moses goes before Pharaoh, Moses talks to his attendant. His attendant talks to Pharaoh's attendant. Attendant to Pharaoh talks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh talks to his attendant. His attendant talks to Moses. Moses steps up and basically says, uh, I ain't talking directly to you either. That's why he has Aaron with him. Aaron's going to be the one who speaks, at least at first. And this is so interesting because it's a power struggle. You see the power play being had? Two people standing before each other who refuse. They're not talking to each other. They're both displaying that the other is greater. And what we see throughout chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 is the centrality of the heart. Now, this is controversial stuff because there's talks of hardening hearts, okay? And anytime you start talking about that, people start getting into camps about which, who does the hardening and who does what, right? I want to point out to you something very basic. At the very, very beginning, chapter 4, verse 21, we're told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. 
Chapter 4, verse 21, the first reference is to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. He says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let the people go so that he could bring the plagues. Everybody get that? Because right? you would expect God just to soften his heart so he wouldn't have to have all the plagues. But God says the plagues are necessary. So he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go so that all of the plagues will happen. I wonder why. Then we see throughout Exodus another nine times, another eight times for a total of nine that speak of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Nine times God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Then we see six other occasions where where we're just told in general Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We're not told from what end. We just know that his heart was hardened. That's another six times. And then... There are three occurrences where we're told Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Chapter 8 and chapter 9. Can I tell you what's going on in chapter 8 and 9? There you go. I love to hear pages turning. Isn't that great? What's happening in chapters 8 and 9? Plagues. Guess what's happening while the plagues are happening? Pharaoh is hardening I will not bow. I will not listen. You see what I'm talking about? The the plagues are coming and Pharaoh's response to them, I will not obey. So we're told God hardens his heart. We're told Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And we're told that his heart is hardened. And so that that has to tell us something about what's, what's God getting at. Well, in order for rescue to come, hearts are gonna have to be softened somewhere. And we're told that it's through the plagues that God is going to demonstrate his power and he is going to set his people free. I want you to notice that the rest of chapter 7 tells us that Moses was called to be obedient to the plan of God and trust him. It's not easy to hear that God's going to pour out plagues and still go, okay, that sounds like a great plan. But Moses had to trust him. Moses had to trust God and do what he said. And he does. And the plagues are actually God's way of showing his power. This is why the plagues had to happen. Because God is going to demonstrate that his power is greater than all others. How's he going to do that? In the plagues, real quick, you're going to see an escalation. The plagues begin with God striking the water. The plagues then escalate to God striking dry land. The plagues then escalate to God striking the animals of the dry land. The plagues then escalate to God striking the vegetation of the dry land. The plagues escalate to God raining down from the heavens. Water, earth, heavens. That's all of creation. So God, through the plagues, is going to demonstrate on an increasingly more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, intense way, that he is the God over the water, the earth, and the heavens. Why is this important? And the Egyptians didn't believe that. They had gods for everything, including the water, the land, and the heavens. So guess what God's going to do? We're going to have a cosmic weightlifting contest. 
And God's going to step up the, call up the Egyptian fake gods. And he's going to say, watch what I do. You want to know who's in control of creation? God's about to show you. And we're going to go through this real fast. I know we don't have time to go through them all. I wish I could. I wish we could stop and camp on each one. But we're going to go through them really, really fast. And I want you to think about it this way. Imagine you're about to lift a bar of weights and you slap 100 pounds on there. This is what we see in the first two plagues. In chapter 7 and 8, plague number one, God turns uh, the waters of the, of the Nile to blood, which, by the way, is interesting because we're told Pharaoh was down in the morning by the Nile. What would he be doing down there? Worshiping the fake gods. God turns the water into blood. And remember, Pharaoh stated in 5.2 that he didn't know God. Well, here, God says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. God acts so that he might know that he is the Lord. Aaron strikes the water in the Nile. All the water in the Nile turned into blood. Fish died. The Nile stank so the Egyptians could not drink the water anymore. But we're told in chapter 7 that the magicians of Egypt did the same thing. They were able to recreate it somehow. They create a similar effect in the presence of Pharaoh. But here's the problem. They can't turn blood back into water. Plague number two, frogs. Gross, right? Is there anything worse? That's terrible. Frogs. Which, by the way, the Egyptians thought frogs were sacred. Aaron stretches out his staff. Frogs come up out. Notice Aaron did it. Aaron stretches out his staff. Frogs don't just stay in the water. They come up into their houses. That's terrible, right? If, you, uh, if they stay in the water, that's one thing. Don't come in the house. We're told again that the magicians are able to do it by their secret arts. They made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. But according to chapter 8, verse 8, they can't make the frogs go away. They're one-sided. Plague number three. Oh, Gnats slash lice. By the way, now you know why they shaved their heads most of the time in Egypt. Lice ain't good. So they would shave their heads. Aaron strikes the dust of the ground with his staff. Again, Aaron does it, not Moses. Aaron strikes the dust of the ground with his staff, and there were gnats on man and beast. Ugh. Not just in the water, not just in the house, but now they're on the people and the animals. The magicians tried by their secret arts to make gnats or slash lice, but they couldn't. And guess what the magicians of Egypt say? This is the finger of God. They stop trying to recreate because they know they ain't God. And now when they look at the gnats slash lice that are breaking out everywhere, they say, this is the finger of God. If only Pharaoh would have seen it too. Okay, see, God, God's showing his power over water, and he's beginning to show it over dry land, right? Strike dust, turns into lice. Okay, so that's a 100-pound bar, lifts that. Now God says, put a couple more 100 pounds on there. Let's lift it again. Plagues 4, 5, and 6. We see the severity increases, and now we start to see that there are distinctions between Egypt and Israel. Plague number 4 was flies. Now what's interesting is there's no mention of Aaron using his staff now nor any mention of Pharaoh's magicians. One commentator says, it's as if the confrontation now advances from one between Aaron and the magicians to now it's Moses versus Pharaoh. And the Lord sends flies out the land of Egypt 
except in the land of Goshen. Does anybody know what was unique about the land of Goshen? That's where God's people were. So God begins to mark out a distinction between Egypt and his people. And there's no swarm of flies there. Praise the Lord. In verse 25, Pharaoh gives a conditional release of the people. He says, you can go and worship God, but only in the land. But in verse 27, Moses answers him and says, we must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord. And then he says this, our God, we are, we are to go sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So guess what? Pharaoh didn't get to dictate worship. And they say, no, if we're going to go, we're going to go as God has told us to go. Pharaoh continues to redefine what he will allow. Verse 28, they can worship in the wilderness. They just can't go very far. This is a battle. Who deserves worship? And who gets to call the shots? Who gets to be the king? Pharaoh is kicking as hard as he can. Exodus chapter 9, we have plague number 5. Egyptian livestock die. The Lord sends a severe plague on the livestock of Egypt. Again, we see a distinction between Egypt's and Israel's livestock because not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Pharaoh, in verse 7, sent to see if, in fact, Israel had been spared. He's curious. Plague 6. Uh-oh. God's king over dry land. He's now he's starting to deal with people. Because the next plague is the one that we all love, the plague of boils. The Lord sends boils over the land of Egypt. Notice the plagues have uh, progressed to not just dealing with groups of people, but dealing with individuals. The magicians who at one time were replicating plagues are not only not able to replicate them anymore or reverse the effects of them, but according to verse 11 of chapter 9, they are unable to stand before Moses because of boils, because the boils came upon the magicians. Even they can't be spared because now they're impacted by it. See what God's doing? I'm the God. I'm the king over water, dry land, Animals, people, I'm the king. He creates, he rescues. God does everything himself by his own powerful hand. He's demonstrating his might over all creation. That it wasn't Egyptian gods that deserved to be worshipped. It was God alone of Israel who deserved to be worshipped, okay? So now he's lifted that one. He says, put a couple more hundred pounds on it. Let's lift some more. Because now we get to plague seven, eight, and nine. And the severity increases. Plague number seven is hail. And the plague of hail ratchets up the intensity as the plagues of God will be sent on Pharaoh himself now and his servants. In chapter 9, verse 16, God says the purpose for all he is doing is to, look, look there in verse 16, the reason, uh, reason God is doing all of this is, he says, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God is going to demonstrate to Pharaoh without any ambiguity that God alone deserves worship throughout the entire earth. He's doing it to show how powerful he is. But Pharaoh is guilty of exalting himself against God's people. Now we're told that God does provide rescue for all who would fear him, according to verses 19, 20, and 21 as they're called to bring their people and animals into safe shelter. Again, God's people are protected from the plague. 
Plague eight, locusts. The servants of Pharaoh call for him to let the people go. They've started to turn on him. Would you please let these people go? Pharaoh again gives a limit to it. He limits how they're going to worship, but guess what? God will not allow partial worship to take place. And Moses won't either. And we're told that the locusts were so great and numerous that they actually blocked out the sun. And that was to lead you up to plague nine, the plague of darkness. We're told that God sends pitch darkness over the land, but not all the land. He sends pitch darkness over the land, but the people of Israel had light. See, God's teaching something about what it means to be his kids. That he provides, he cares for, he rescues. And again, Pharaoh tries to dictate their worship. Pharaoh has hardened his heart and he refuses to budge against the mighty hand of God. Even the magicians are telling him, this is the finger of God you're kicking against. And before we get to the final plague, which we'll cover next, uh, two weeks from now. Next week will be VBS Sunday. But we're going to cover two weeks from now that final plague in God's rescue. I want to point you to the beginning of chapter 11. And I'm going to encourage you this week as you leave, I'm going to encourage you this week to read through the first 10 verses of chapter 11. Because it's in these verses that we're told that God has a plan to rescue his people and to make his name great. We're told in chapter 11 that God has a sovereign plan. We're told in chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. Notice what God's the one calling the shots. He says, I'm sending one more plague, right? Remember at the beginning when he said the plagues are going to come, he says, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. But now here when we get to the final plague, guess what God says to, to Moses? I'm going to do one more. And after this one, Pharaoh's going to let the people go. Boy, that's a pretty definitive statement. Well, God's the one controlling everything anyways. He's the one who's all-powerful, and he's moving Pharaoh's heart to where he wants him to be. And we see that it's God's plan that this would happen. God wanted his plan to come to fruition. And by Pharaoh's refusal to obey God, he was actually bringing about God's plan. Let that sink into your brain. And God's plan was to bring about all the plagues. See, that can, that can be hard to swallow sometimes because we like to think of God's plan just being the good stuff. We don't, we don't true much like the idea that God might ordain difficult things in our lives to accomplish. And yet we know it's true. And here we're told that the exodus of God's people, God's delivering of his people was going to include all the plagues and God was gonna do what was necessary to make sure that his power was demonstrated over all of creation, water, land, and heavens. So what do we do with this? What do we take away from this? Right? Just a, just a nice little story we can tell on flannel board, right? You can have nice little pictures and walk them through. What do we take away from it? 
six. Six things, all right? Uh, I'll try to be brief. Number one, we need to see our desperate condition apart from God. We need to see our desperate condition apart from God. Remember chapter five. Remember before the plagues come, what did the people find themselves in? Slavery, right? Punishment, pain, agony, needing God's deliverance. We have to remember that God is telling us a spiritual point here that we are not able to do for ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We need him. And in order for us to understand that fully, we have to see our desperate need for God. That apart from him, we have nothing. Number two, God is the rescuer. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't set ourselves free from slavery to sin. God has to rescue his people. He heard their cries, and he promised to deliver them by his mighty acts. The same thing is true today. God has thankfully acted to rescue us. Number three, God in his grace brings us into covenant relationship with himself. He didn't have to do that. God in his grace brings us into a covenant relationship with him. He promises that we will be his people and he will be our God. And that's based on what he's going to do and how he's going to be perfectly obedient even in the midst of our failures. God in his grace brings us into that. None of us in the room deserve God's rescue. None of us deserve or merit his love or compassion and yet he gives it. That's called grace. And God, in his grace, brings us into relationship. Number four, we need new hearts. Notice that the refrain throughout seven, eight, and nine was the hard heart, the hard heart, the hard heart. Something had to happen. I think God is teaching us the main issue we face as people is not just bad actions, not just that we do bad things. The main problem we have is that we have hearts that are evil and desire to be rebellious against God and to be our own king. We need new hearts. And like David in Psalm 51, we should cry out to God, give us a new heart, one that loves God and hates sin. He gives us that by his grace. Number five, we are called to trust the sovereign God King who is all-powerful. We are called to trust the sovereign God King who is all-powerful. Remember, Pharaoh propped himself up as the God King. You will worship me. I'm the King. You'll do what I say. You'll do as I command you. But God sets himself up against Pharaoh and says, no, you're not the King. I'm the King. You know how I know I'm the King? I made you, Pharaoh. I made you, and I'll take my people out when I see fit. God, God wants us to understand there are not multiple gods. Sorry, I just got, I got a preacher there for a second. Multiple gods. They're not multiple. There's one true God, and he does according to his good pleasure. And thankfully, his pleasure includes saving people like you and me right? But don't ever mistake it. The president's not in control. Kim Jong-un ain't in control. No worldly power is in control. You know who's in control? God Almighty, 
who made everything and everyone in it. He is the God King. And in Exodus, he demonstrates his power. Woo, that's good news because it means I ain't got to worry. I ain't got to turn on the news and go, oh, no, what's going to happen with the world? No, God told me what's going to happen. You know why? Because he's the king. Last point, number six. This morning, what I would love for everyone in the room to be able to do together is let's all of us, before we leave here, let's recognize the mighty hand of God. All right, because I can become... Over the course of the week, I can start to view God as smaller and smaller, right? As the troubles and as the difficulties rise up and all the stress and worry and pain, as that starts to creep up, I start to think a little less of God. But what God does in his word is remind me that he does not shrink. He is the almighty king and his works he displayed here are still the works he does today. Because he rescues hard-hearted people and brings them into his own family. He sets them free from bondage, not to slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin. And he brings them into ultimate relationship with himself where he is our king. We are his people. And just so you know, God is never like Pharaoh. God is always gracious and loving and nurturing of his people. He shepherds his people. He doesn't call them to make bricks he calls them to rest in his presence. Oh, we need to be reminded and see clearer the mighty works of God. They're happening all around us. Every time God saves somebody, we're getting another picture of the fact that he is the rightful king. Exodus, these plagues are meant to point us to God's mighty hand. And if he can do that for them, I can imagine he can see us through our cancer diagnosis, our financial problems, our emotional stress, our worry. I guarantee God can carry all those things. The one who created the waters and the earth and the heavens, he is the one who today still cares for his sheep. Oh, walk away today with a picture of how mighty God is and how much he loves his people. See, all that matters this morning is whether you're his child or not, whether you're saved or not. And if you're here this morning and you're trying to be good enough that God will save you, the Bible tells you you can't do it. You can't do enough good to make up for your sin. And everyone's a sinner. But God doesn't tell us we're called to make up for our sin. God calls us to believe that Jesus paid for our sin. That when he died on the cross, he was taking our place. The punishment we deserved for our sin, Jesus took upon himself. He was completely faithful and obedient to the Father. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave to demonstrate that God was pleased with his sacrifice and accepted it as, as, as sufficient to cover the sins of people. And so this morning, what I'm going to encourage you to do is not try harder, not be good. What I'm going to encourage you this morning to do is trust Jesus. Fall before him, confess your sin, and find the king who welcomes lost sheep back into his fold. Welcome to his fold. And I'm going to encourage you, do not presume that tomorrow will come, but to turn and trust in Jesus today. Turn away from sin, the fake joy it offers, and turn to the true joy that is only found in Jesus Christ. And Christians, let's remember that we are loved and we serve the mighty 
king of all creation. The one who can bring plagues is the one who can rescue us out of the greatest danger, including sin. And one day, the Bible tells us, when Jesus comes back, we will be presented to the Father, and Jesus will say, here's all your people that I rescued. Here they are, washed clean by me. Oh, I don't know about you. That's going to be a good day. When Jesus says, I rescued them for you. I delivered them from sin. I brought them through the waters that look like sin, the evil. I brought them out of it, and now they're pure, and they're yours. Oh, Exodus is not just talking about crossing a body of water over in the Middle East. Exodus is talking about how God rescues people from sin and brings them into a relationship with himself that we might dwell with him forever. Praise Lord Jesus. He did this for us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you, and I thank you that your word, all of it, points us to your greatness, your mighty hand, your work. And Father, I'm so grateful that you're not just a distant observer of these things, but you heard the cry of your people and you acted. God, I'm grateful that in 1996, you heard my cries of, forget, of repentance and you saved me too. And God, I give you all praise for that. And I pray, God, that you'll rescue more people today. Lord, I know that in a room like this, there are people here who probably aren't saved. I'm going to ask you to rescue them, God. Draw them to yourself. Show them that they have a desperate need for you. Show them that you are the king. Show them that they cannot save themselves. God, show them that you are the rescuer who cares and reaches down to scoop us up from our sin. Show us that it's by your grace. Show us our need for a new heart that only you can bring. Show us how we can trust you and lean on you. And God, show us your mighty hand in salvation. Lord, save people this morning. And God, help us as Christians to realize that we don't just serve a king. We serve the king of all creation. May our lives and our words and our deeds reflect that we trust you and your plan. And God, we are supremely grateful this morning that you saved us from our sin. May our song leap out to you for your glory. God, I pray that you will work in such a mighty way in this place and in this community that people can only say that is the finger of God. Start here with us. I pray and I, I petition you, Lord, rescue people for your glory. As we respond to you, God, may you receive praise. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.